If you're like me, you've found some doors are incredibly hard not only to open, but to walk through. I'm going to tell you about one of those doors that I walked through earlier this week in just a minute. It was an individual who in July of 2009 found an almost impenetrable door. Um, an individual who is a sports star known around the world uh, because of his ability to play on the court, he's a basketball player, uh, was in Washington, D.C. and on a radio talk show. He's on a sports radio talk show, and he said to those listening, hey, check it out. I'm wearing a really good suit, got my championship rings on my fingers, I drive in a limousine, I pull up to the front steps of the White House. I get out at the gate of the White House without an invitation. I go to the security guard and say, I want to see the prez. Do I get in? That's the question that he posed to the listeners on the radio. At seven foot one and 325 pounds, Shaquille O'Neal doesn't have too many doors that close to him. So Shaquille O'Neal, with his broad smile, decides to put it to the test. What he asked the listeners on the radio on Friday, he decided on Sunday, since I'm in town, I've got nothing to do, I'm going to go see President Obama. He loves basketball. So Shaquille O'Neal goes to the gate of the White House, talks to the security guard and says, I'd like to see the prez. Security guard says, sorry, Mr. O'Neal, don't see your name on this list anyplace. He says, it's okay. President Obama, he loves basketball and I know he loves me. They said, I'm sorry, your name is not on the list. We cannot let you through. Come on, you guys, you can let me through. I mean, look at, I'm dressed good. Look at my championship rings. You gotta let me in. I told all these people on the radio I could do this. He talked and talked and talked, and they rejected him like he rejects basketball players at the bottom of the hoop. Slam. <laughs> Wouldn't let him in. The doors closed would not open the opportunity for one of the most famous men in the world to get beyond security. That door was impenetrable. We have found in the study of Revelation, if you're new with us today, we've been studying this for about 36 weeks, only three weeks left to go. We've found in the study of Revelation that it is one of finding balance. Balance between what we in modern America perceive about what heaven is going to be like and what the last days will be like because of the influence of society and media balanced against what the Word of God actually says. This morning, you're going to see with me one of the other truths that will wash away, people hold as truth, that everyone gets into heaven. What you're going to see in Revelation 20 this morning is that the doors are closed to some people, that the gates are impenetrable. This week, while I was preparing for this teaching, because I knew that I was looking at something in the realm of what happens to people when they die, I decided to look at what other world religions believe by visiting with other world religions. So I decided I'm going to visit a Jewish temple, and I'm going to visit a Hindu temple, and I'm going to go, of all places, into the very lair of the enemy. I'm going to go into a store where they sell satanic materials. I don't know if you know that there's a store in the Lansing area where they sell items related to witchcraft. So I decided on Monday to be all bright and cheery and go out and take the hardest one first. So on Monday, I got up, and uh, after I did a proper, appropriate amount of prayer time, 
I decided to go to this store where they sell all kinds of materials on satanic behavior. I was surprised when I walked through the door, not only for the physical feeling that overcame me, a literal physical shaking, and (laughs) it was very intimidating at first. In the first couple minutes, I'm thinking, what in the world am I doing here? And after my eyes glanced from a couple of the books I was looking at, I looked across the room to see people staring at me. I think they knew. Now, as I watched this one individual, she saw that I had her attention. She looked to the man next to her, sitting in a chair, and they began flipping back through the book that they were looking at. She was teaching him how to cast spells. Now, at the front counter was an individual who was selling materials to the customers that were in there. I was surprised how many people were actually in there. A young mom with her 12 or 13-year-old son, she was buying him a book on Satanism. He was fascinated with the material. I was fascinated that they were so drawn to this, and I began reading the titles on the books. How to Become the God Within You. How to Achieve Your True Self. Self-actualization. Book after book after book of achieving the God within you. That's what most of the titles led towards. After the store thinned out a little bit, I began talking to the owner of the store, and I said, you know, I'm very interested in teaching on this particular concept of what happens to people when they die. And as we began to dialogue, he said, well, who are you going to be teaching? (laughs) I said, I'm a pastor, and I'm going to be teaching on what happens to people when they die. The eyes widened, and a step (laughs) went back like this. And so I said, what what do you teach, what do you offer here within this store of people who buy things from you? And they sell to people all over the world, internet, websites. And he said, well, the most commonly held one here in the Lansing area between Okemos, East Lansing, and Hazlitt is the Wicca movement. And he said, I'd like you to understand what that is. So he explained it to me. And he said, I really want you to understand that in the Wicca movement, um, people believe that they get better and better, and when they die... Um, If they didn't achieve the state of perfection, they come back again. They reincarnate, reincarnation we call it. Now that's interestingly what the Hindus hold to as well as Buddhists. Now as I'm talking with him and he explained to me um, what Wicca was, it was very clear that it's, it's part of Satanism, it's part of witchery. And as I moved through the store, book after book after book on witchcraft and Satanism and how to worship Satan I then turned to him and said, what do you personally believe? He said, me? I don't believe any of this stuff. (laughs) I said, are you kidding me? He said, no, I'm an agnostic, man. I said, okay, I know what an agnostic is, but tell me what you think an agnostic is. He said, I think it's unknowable. It'll all work out in the end. As a matter of fact, I know we're all going to stand before God. But he said, you can't know anything else. You can't know how it's all going to work out. It's unknowable. He said, my wife, she's really into this stuff. That's the one who'd been watching me move through the store. So I understood what I was up against. This truth that they present as truth, which we would call false truth, according to the teachings of Scripture, is as ancient as man on earth. It is what Satan told Eve in the Garden of Eden, Eve, in the day that you eat of the fruit, you will not surely die, for God knows that you will be as God, 
knowing good from evil. See, you can be God. That's the false teaching. And I've seen these three consistent teachings about what happens to people when they die repeated time and time and time again throughout history and really prevalently here in our society today. Let me show you the three ways that I believe that Satan has used this tool throughout time. You'll see them up on the screen. First one's atheism. Absolutely deny God's existence. There's no judge to whom people are accountable. So if there's no God, you're not accountable for anything. And it'll all work out in the end. The other one, false religion. Teaches you can work to a state of perfection. You mess it up, you get to try over again. You mess it up, you get to try over again. Over and over and over again. That's what reincarnation is. That's what false religion teaches. That you are God. Eventually, you'll achieve that state. The third one, ambivalence. Absolutely just saying, I have no idea, it's unknowable. That's what the guy in the store said. You can't know it. You can't understand where things are going to play out, how they're going to play out. Now that is in direct contrast to what Jesus said. This is what Jesus said in John 8, 24. Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. That's truth. So this morning we're going to explore Revelation chapter 20 with this question in mind, who gets in and who doesn't? Who gets to go through those pearly gates? Because next week, we're looking at a description of the city of heaven, and it's amazing. But today, we're going to look at who gets in and who does not. So if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Revelation chapter 20. If you're new to New Hope, you'll find Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. Those are there for you to use today, and if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those with you. It's our gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word in your hand. My role this morning is not only to declare truth to you, but I'm going to kind of be like the string tire when you wrap Christmas gifts at Christmas time and you end up having somebody put their finger on the bow when you're tying the bows together. I'm going to help you tie all the strings together. We're going to bring together lots of passages of Scripture from all over the Bible that speak to Revelation chapter 20. So I'm going to be like your guide on this exploration. Revelation 20 and verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Now remember what John has seen up till this point, we've been in this for lots of weeks, he's seen all these amazing images. And here at the very end, one of the last chapters in the book, he sees this monstrous white throne. Now, don't confuse this with the throne of Jesus in which he gives out rewards to those who follow him. This is not the Bema seat. This is not the throne of righteousness. This is the white throne of judgment. So what John is seeing is a judge's bench, a judge seated on his throne. It's called the great white throne judgment. It's great because its size indicates it's very significant. It's a megas throne, huge but also it speaks to the authority with which it carries. It has weight behind it. And it's white, meaning it's pure, it's holy. And everything that comes from it, the verdicts that are delivered will be righteous and will be just. There will be no denying it. Deuteronomy 32.4, look at the description of God. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness, and without injustice, Righteous and upright is he. You see, nothing 
compels God to act justly. It is by his very nature, by his very character, that he is just and righteous. He's not motivated towards it. It is who he is. So as I'm looking at this, I'm very much thinking in my mind this last week, especially with the election of some judges coming up, thinking, what would it take to have a perfect courtroom scenario? What would it take for a verdict to be handed down from a judge that would be absolutely indisputable? I came up with five specific things. First of all, it requires an infallible judge, one who cannot make any mistakes whatsoever. Second thing it requires, a judge with the knowledge of all the details, not just some of them. He has to know everything. Third thing, a knowledge of the law. A judge to hand down a perfect decision would have to know every single detail about the law. Fourth thing, the laws have to be unquestionable. Every single thing about those laws better be able to be backed up. And the fifth thing that I noticed, this judge better have the authority to back up the verdict. So this is a description of God I found in Psalms 9 from David. King David wrote this, Psalms 9-7. The Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. So John says, him who sat up on it is referring to who the person is. The person sitting on this mega throne is none other than God Almighty Jesus, the Son of God. As a matter of fact, we're told specifically in Scripture that Jesus is the one who's been given the authority to judge all things. Look with me on the screen, John 5, 22. Not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Luke wrote in Acts 10, he is the judge of the living and the dead. So we know this is Jesus upon this throne, and do you notice how awesome Jesus is? The description says, heaven and earth fled from his presence. In other words, we've got a description here of the uncreation of the universe. There is the creation in which God spoke it into existence, and then there is the uncreation. I'm going to show you that in just a minute. So John's looking at the judge on his throne, this amazing white throne seat that he sees. All of a sudden, his attention is diverted because heaven and earth are fleeing from the presence of this one on the throne. This is astonishing because Jesus, during the tribulation, shook the earth to reshape it. And then after the last days, during the millennial kingdom, as you learned last week, he not only reshapes the earth, but he makes it into a bountiful place for those who live on the earth during the millennial kingdom. But at the end of it all, the earth is uncreated. Why? Because sin still contaminates the earth, and it must be destroyed. So we're looking as creatures towards a new heaven and a new earth. That's what we're told in Scripture, 2 Peter 3.13. According to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God will literally create a new planet, a new earth. Look with me at Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. And we're told no place was found for them. Totally out of existence. This is a violent termination of the universe. 
Look at this description from Dr. Donald, Donald Barnhouse. He's a theologian who's written on this material. I wanted you to see his quote. There is to be an end, <clears throat> excuse me, there is to be an end of the material heavens and earth which we know. It is not that they are to be purified and rehabilitated, but that the reverse of creation is to take place. They are to be uncreated. As they came from nothing at the word of God, they are to be sucked back into nothingness by the same word of God. So what John describes here is extraordinary. It's unearthly. Look at the description from an Old Testament writing, Psalms 102. Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing you will change them, and they will be changed. Okay, that's the Old Testament. Now look at Peter's description. It's much more in detail. Second Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. So we're talking about a fading of everything we've ever known. Everything that's been familiar to us. It's fading out of existence. And the only reality now is God on his throne. And all this group of people who are summoned before him. Who is that? Let's look. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. So in the midst of this indescribable void, extreme, inconceivable nothingness except God's throne, we see this judge seated on the throne and all the accused standing before him. Judge, throne, those who are accused. And they're standing in this realm of nothingness because it's all gone out of existence. Everyone standing before this throne are those who died without Jesus Christ as their Savior. This is the unbeliever's judgment. Believers are with God in heaven. This is the realm of the dead who died without Jesus. And you're going to see a description of this. Specifically, it comes from Daniel. It's called the resurrection to disgrace. Look with me on the screen, Daniel 12, 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Scripture says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's you if you name the name of Jesus Christ. So the first half of that verse is talking about you. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life. But to the others, who are the others? The others are the dead who are standing before the throne. The others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So John says he sees the great and the small. This all-encompassing, sweeping mass of humanity who have died in their sins standing before the white throne. Somebody's and nobody's. Dead souls united with their bodies. It's a resurrection. You'll see a description of how it's joined together in just a minute. Now look what happens next. And the books were opened. This is the remainder of verse 12. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books 
according to their deeds. What if every single thing you've ever done, every thought, every action, every word was written down? Ooh, it's okay. Take the tension away. If you're in the name of Christ, your deeds are dismissed because of forgiveness through Jesus. But for these who stand before the throne, every single thing they've ever done, written down. Nothing escapes God's attention. So we see this book opened up, and the books are open for all to see, for God's eyes to look on every thought, every word, every action. Daniel, the ancient prophet, described this scene. Look with me on the screen. Daniel 7, 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened." Now there's a moment of tension. The book of deeds, the book of actions, unmistakable evidence of a person's loyalty. Would you not say that your actions indicate what you're loyal towards? What you do indicates what you hold most dear. And so this book of deeds is going to indicate where is their loyalty. It expresses either belief or unbelief, loyalty or disloyalty. So ponder this. In God's sight, All these actions are exposed. Everything is exposed. Nothing is missed. Scripture told us when we looked in the beginning of Revelation, nothing is hidden from the eyes of him who sees everything with blazing eyes like laser beams. God has a perfect, comprehensive record of every single life. And he keeps that record for this last day. Now these books do not reveal the extent specifically of the good deeds versus the evil deeds so God can do a weight and balance. That's not what's going on here. I believe specifically that these actions are used to measure against God's standard of righteousness. What is God's standard of righteousness? This is what Jesus said, Matthew 5.48, Mark, Matthew 5.48, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How can you do that? How can you be perfect except when you're seen through the eyes of Jesus Christ? If he's taken your sin upon him, then you're forgiven and you're seen as perfect by the Father. We understand that as believers. That is what is a mystery to those who are lost. That's why this is described for us in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God made Jesus to take our sin so that we would become righteous. See how? In him. We're righteous through Jesus Christ. But what do you do when you're standing before the judge of all the earth, before the white megas throne, and he's got the book of deeds opened, and all he sees is a sinner? He doesn't see them through the eyes of Jesus Christ. Those seen by God without the covering of Jesus on them, will be judged in three specific areas from what I can determine in looking at Scripture. 
Let me show you what those three areas are up on the screen. Those without Jesus will be judged for their thoughts, Romans 2.16. He will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus for their words, for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned, Matthew 12.37, and for their actions. The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds, Matthew 16, 27. Now, here's the remarkable thing. No one will be able to claim ignorance. Romans 1, 21. Creation testifies to the existence of God. Romans 2, 13. The conscience understands the existence of God. So just like the man I spoke to in that store who said, I don't believe any of this stuff, but then said to me, I know we're going to stand before God one day. How could he know that unless it spoke from the core of his being? So that speaks to those who are in tribal areas, in distant countries, who have never heard. Scripture says they'll be judged on what they do know, what they contain within them. And do you notice that another book is opened, and it says the book of life. That is a fascinating book. Your name, if you name the name of Jesus Christ as your Savior, is already written in that book. Your name is written in the book of life. That's what Scripture promises. Jesus said that to the disciples. Rejoice that your name is already written in heaven. So if you've named the name of Christ, you're in the book of life. That means you're not standing before this throne. No unsaved person at the white throne judgment has their name written in the book of life. Their name has already been blotted out. At the moment they die, it's too late. Their name is blotted out according to what Scripture says. My speculation, just my speculation, is that one of the first books to be opened is probably the Word of God because this is the law. This is the thing that was supposed to guide us. As a matter of fact, it's supported by Scripture, John 12, 48. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. That's Jesus speaking. What's the word that he spoke? The word of God. So I think at the last judgment here, this white throne judgment, we see the Bible opened up, the word of God, and then another book, a second book, is the, word of de- the book of deeds, indicating all the actions, all the behaviors of these individuals. According to their deeds, they will be judged. Let me take you back to the 1990s. President Clinton is in office, and he's found to have committed some indiscretions. Because of these indiscretions, there is impeachment proceedings that begin. In the midst of the impeachment proceedings, they decide to convene a jury. The jury, because they don't want to bring him on display as a public spectacle, decide to begin a questioning and answering process in the White House. So the grand jury sends some representatives over to meet with President Clinton, and they begin asking him a series of questions. In the midst of one of the questions, someone uses the word is in relation to an accusation. President Clinton's response is familiar to everybody today because he parsed the words in such a way that it became laughable when he said, well, it depends on what the meaning of the word is is. Now, it becomes laughable because everybody steps back and says, there's a man who's feeling guilt, 
and would like to back away from the accusations by parsing the words. In other words, he's appealing to the jury, trying to define the meaning of the words. Before God, everything is black and white. There is no appeal. No one's going to say, hey, God, you know, I know you got this written in the book of deeds, but it depends on really what the meaning of the word is is right there, don't you think? That isn't possible when you're standing before the judge of all the earth. Here's what's different about this situation from our modern court. There's a judge, but there's no jury. There's a prosecutor, but there's no defense attorney. And there's no appeal. You can't come back to the sentence and say, I want to appeal the sentence. God says it's not possible. Verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. So now we see God summoning the prisoners from all the cells, sea dead, earth dead, meaning the bodies. So everyone who died from the Titanic to the ancient shipwrecks in the sea, God summons all those dead bodies. And everyone who's been buried in a grave, he summons them all. And notice what it says specifically. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. The place where all dead souls go, Hades in Scripture, Sheol is another word for hell, it's a temporary holding place, a place where people are held who do not name the name of Jesus Christ. Because Scripture says when a believer dies, to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord, right. That means instantly when a believer dies, they're in God's presence. But when a non-believer dies, according to what Scripture teaches, they go instantly to this place called Sheol or Hades. Hades is a description for a place of punishment, a place of holding. And so from Hades and the bodies resurrected from the sea and from the earth, God joins those souls back with bodies and they stand before him. So that's the description that's going on here. These three places are emptied of everyone who stands before God. Now you have to ask yourself, and this is a good place to ask this question, why in the world would God keep a book of deeds? You see, you've got specifically people who've already rejected Jesus Christ. They've lived their life and they decided, he's not for me. That is not the route I'm going to go. So they're already condemned according to Scripture. So why have this book of deeds? Why would Jesus consider that? I believe from what I understand in Scripture, this is used to determine the degrees of punishment, the degrees by which people will suffer punishment in hell. As a matter of fact, many places in Scripture speak to this. Scripture teaches there's varying degrees. In some places, it actually says some of the angels will be held in the deepest, darkest places of hell, meaning there's different levels to it. Some held in bonds to everlasting darkness, Scripture says. And Jesus replied to these individuals when they stand before him with these book of deeds open will be only one word. And he told us what it would be in Matthew 7, 23. Depart from me, I never knew you. Those are the most chilling words that could ever be stated. So verse 14 takes it and wraps it up and tells us just how quickly the verdict will be passed. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death 
the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in, written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Just like that. Do you see how instant that is? God's justice is swift at this point in time. The age of grace has ended. There is no more mercy extended at this point. The verdict has been rendered, and so the judgment is swiftly carried out. So it says, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, meaning this, it's out of existence. Death will no longer have an influence on you. It's gone. It's been cast into eternity into the lake of fire. Death and Hades, there's no danger of you ever going to hell because God's taken death and taken hell and throwing it into the lake of fire at this point. It goes out of existence. Interestingly, this lake of fire that it's speaking of here is currently unoccupied. If it already exists and God's already created it, it's unoccupied, it's empty. But in the last days, we understand from our study that eventually the Antichrist will be thrown there first and then Satan and his demons and all these who stand before the white throne. You know that Jesus spoke very firmly and very plainly about the truth of hell. Now just bear with me for a minute because I know this is heavy material. But think of the descriptions Jesus used when he referred to hell as being like Gahana. The word Gahana is a def definition, a term for the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. The Valley of Ben-Hinnom is a valley, a literal valley outside the city of Jerusalem where the people who lived in the city took all their waste. It was an early landfill. Now in this early landfill where they took all their waste, they took, including their garbage from their household, they took human waste and they took dead bodies that could not afford to be buried in graves. Now, in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, what they did in order to deal with the mounting waste is they would have an eternal fire there. It would constantly burn. So when you carried your trash there, you were responsible to throw it on the fire. And the smoke was putrid, burning flesh, burning trash. And these billows of gray smoke constantly coming up out of the valley. So it's no wonder that Jesus used that as an illustration of hell when he said it is like Gehenna where the fire never goes out, where the smell is putrid. As a matter of fact, the descriptions in Scripture say hell is a place of total darkness, absolute blackness, where people will be isolated from each other. And the worst thing about it is they're separated from the kingdom of God. And that there's weeping and gnashing of teeth there because it's eternal torment. So that's why it says this is the second death. So the second death is the lake of fire for those who are cast there. Now just so we're clear, the white throne that we've been looking at here and this book of judgment that's being, this book of life that's being referred to, only those who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior are written in the book of life. That's who's written down. So what happens when you die? That's the question that I put out there on a postcard this week. That's the question that I asked that guy in the store. He said, it's not knowable. I'm here to tell you on the authority of the word of God, it is knowable. Absolutely, you can know your destiny. If you die 
with Jesus as your Lord and Savior, King of Kings, you are instantly in his presence. That's what scripture says. And you can know for sure that you belong to him. This is the spirit of resurrection that we're talking about. So when you die, your spirit instantly in God's presence in a soul state. And at the point of resurrection, when God comes with a trump and the sound and his angels, there's a resurrection of glorified bodies that come together with the souls and you will gain an eternal body. That's what scripture says, a perfect body like Jesus. We'll look at that another time. But it's an amazing thing when you start comparing the way Jesus looked after his resurrection. We will be known as he is known. That's what scripture says. Now think about him walking through walls. Pretty cool stuff. But this says here, if you're not a believer, you've just discovered the description. If you stand in front of the white throne judgment and you have no defense and your sins have not been paid for, there's no appeal, and the judge gives the verdict. So we've got a perfect judge, a perfect throne of righteousness, perfect laws, perfect verdict. Although it's not the outcome these individuals would want, it cannot be questioned. Now here's the remarkable thing. You have a choice. Daniel writes specifically about our choice, and we looked at it earlier. I'm going to close with this last verse. I showed it to you earlier. Let's look at the first part, Daniel 12.2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, speaking of you, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. We talked about that earlier. Now look at the second part of it. Verse 3, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. If you take that verse later today and you open it up in your Bible, I would be circling that word insight. Because if you've named the name of Christ, you have insight. You have at some point in your life made a choice. You've used the insight from the word of God and the working of the Holy Spirit in your life to say, I choose that. That's what it says. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. So that tells me that you have a choice. God is a God of love. God is a God of mercy, grace, wrath. But God is also a God of choice, isn't he? We forget that. He's given us free will. No one's waiting in the parking lot to tackle you when you leave today and hold you down and say, did you decide? We don't do things that way. God is a God of choice, and he's saying, you can choose life or you can choose death. I'm giving you the facts. My question to you this morning is, what will you do with the choice? It's presented before you. So that someday you don't have to be like Shaquille O'Neal tweeted later in the afternoon. When he got rejected at the gate of the White House, he sent a note back to all his followers. He tweeted this message. They rejected me at the gate. Why? He put 17 whys on it. Did he have the authority to get in? No. Did he have the invitation? No. He was rejected at the gate. I don't ever want anyone that I've ever met to hear this truth and then stand at the gate one day and say, I can't get in. They rejected me. 
So if you've never made a decision for Christ, if you've always wanted to make sure that you know that you know for sure, I invite you to come talk to me after the service. There's a few prayer warriors that will be here. They're going to have little name bags on. You can talk to them as well. They will answer questions for you. And if you don't have time to stay today, grab one of the bulletins on your way out. My email is on the back of there. Send me a note. I'd love to dialogue with you this week. So you've heard truth declared this morning. You can know for sure. Your responsibility is to decide, what am I going to do with it? Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for the worship experience that we had this morning. My soul feels so connected to you as a result of being able to sing to you with unbridled enthusiasm. Thank you for the gift of music. Father, I believe that your spirit has been at work here today through the music and through the children's ministry downstairs and through the adult classes right now, but also through the teaching of your word. So God, I ask that you help us not to take what was just taught lightly, but to apply it directly to our lives and not to repel what we feel the prompting of the Spirit telling us to do. There aren't many times in our life, God, where we feel this sense of conviction. And there may be individuals right now that are feeling it, so I lift them up to you and ask that you help them to deal with the reality of their eternal destiny. God, we take this and offer it up to you as a sacrifice of our earnest desire to know you better. We ask that you would bless it. It's in Jesus Christ's name we ask this. Amen. All right. Have a powerful week.